0: It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Well, I hope you were out and about and having a good time on Saturday night. I was deep in the weeds of the latest installment of the Twitter files. And, you know, it's funny because in this age of high tech, and certainly Elon Musk knows something about technology, it was like it was with the first document dump the previous weekend where one paragraph would be posted and then you'd refresh and you would refresh and have to sit around for the next paragraph to be posted. How about figuring out a way to put it all into one package and just, oh, I don't know, post it all at once. It was excruciating. I finally gave up and said, I'll deal with this on Sunday morning because I had to get a little bit of rest before media buzz, uh, where, where I sort of let off with my comments on it. And I sort of broke some of this, and I don't mean broke in the sense of it was exclusive. Certainly online, anybody who wanted to look at all of these revelations, not just the ones from Saturday night, but the ones from Friday night, um, could do so. But in terms of the rest of the media coverage, and and we'll talk about this in a moment, um, nothing in the New York Times, nothing in the Washington Post, nothing uh, on four of the Sunday shows except for Fox News Sunday, And, you know, it takes a certain diligence to go into the weeds and figure out what's new here. There's a lot of new stuff having to do with Donald Trump himself. So, you know, I just did my job. I'm not asking for any pats on the back, but it's just amazing how, you know, network news is like this story doesn't exist. And I guarantee you, if this was flipped and it was found out that um, a previous management at Twitter had systematically discriminated and targeted against um, liberal outlets and liberal users and liberal commentators. This would be a story every 10 minutes, as opposed to this virtual blackout. Hey, this is interesting. And by the way, you can see most of those media buzz segments online uh, as of today, not just the one on Twitter. Um, This is interesting. CBS, it's been reported found out days in advance that there was a deal in place to trade brittany griner for victor boot the merchant of death and at the request of the biden administration held off on that story for fear of jeopardizing her life and the deal and that's the only i think that's the right call it's the only call you could make it's like not reporting troop movements in wartime if this deal had blown up because CBS or any other organization got a scoop, imagine the anger and the fury that we directed at the network. And, you know, again, it was the responsible call. David Letterman went to Ukraine to interview Volodymyr Zelensky. And I was just watching the preview of it. it hasn't been posted yet as I'm speaking to you. I mean, good for Dave. He's like 75 years old or something. I mean, younger than the president. Um, travels all the way there, and then has to take a uh, a train for several hours, and then has to go down. Uh, I think it was 300 feet below ground, below a subway station, to do the interview. Still, obviously, risks involved. And in the in the trailer, it shows you know Dave, uh, Dave saying what an honor it is to meet Zelensky. Still got the long beard, and Zelensky says, "No, I'm so happy to see you." And remember, Zelensky was a sitcom guy, so he knows about Dave Letterman. And he's probably thrilled to do it as another way of getting the word out. And I'll look forward to seeing that conversation. Also, a lot of praise for Trevor Noah as he departs The Daily Show after seven years. Last Thursday was his last show. I got to tell you, I think the guy is a, is brilliant and does stand-up around the world. And I've heard interviews with him. But I never thought he was the right fit for The Daily Show. And I I never thought he was what that program needed. And by the way, now there's going to be rotating hosts, Sarah Silverman and others, for the next several months or maybe the next nine months. Why can't they just find somebody to fill the job? I mean, I guess it's like Jeopardy. To, you know, try different people out. I don't know. But here's a pretty honest New York Times piece about it. It says, well, look, while John Stewart's humor ran hot and righteous, uh, Noah always maintained a cool composure. Stewart was at his best in antagonistic interviews, interrogating ideas, and calling out nonsense. Noah always seemed eager to get above the fray and treated guests with deference and awe. And that's exactly what The Daily Show did not need. Um, one running joke on the last show was the mystery of why he was leaving. After discovering um, that he didn't have another job lined up, the guy's not going to starve. The correspondent... Uh, said about Noah, who was a black mother and a white father, wow, you really are half white. Um, And he did have this emotional thing about black women and how they had black women were an important part of his upbringing. And that's fine. I know he has a lot of fans. I mean, he didn't have great ratings, though. I mean, the Daily Show just didn't drive news. I mean, John Stewart would make news. And it's not that John Stewart is the only guy who could do it. And obviously, John Stewart leaned to the left. um, But occasionally, he would give it to his own side. Um, this piece in the New York Times says that what 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 Trevor Noah was best at, he started posting where he was just speaking off the cuff, uh, you know, kind of working the crowd during the commercials. I guess that was more interesting than the scripted stuff. Have you heard about this from Marjorie Taylor Greene, the congresswoman who's close to Kevin McCarthy, who's at some New York event, and she was trying to explain how she didn't there was some, she was responding to criticism that she had given tours of the Capitol right before January 6th to people who might have been involved. She said, I want to tell you something. If Steve Bannon and I had organized that, we would have won. Not to mention, we would have been armed. How, like, what? How How does a member of Congress looking at the tragedy of the Capitol riot saying, well, if we'd done it, we would have burned a lot more guns and we would have won. We would have, what, mounted a coup. We would have stopped Joe Biden from being president. We would have taken over. I, I just don't know what to say. I mean, she does a lot of things that are obviously designed to push the boundaries and get attention. But this one seems to go just way, way too far. All right. Number one, what I've learned about Twitter. Now. The people who say, oh, this is just a conservative interpretation, whatever. I'm telling you, I've been a journalist for a long time. They have the goods in the documents, in the memos. It's all there in black and white. Now, a week ago, when the first Twitter file dump came out, it wasn't anything great. And I said that. And people said, what do you, no smoking gun? Well, there wasn't. But on this, there's a whole bunch of smoking guns. Uh, So, for example, you know, uh, one example was Dan Bongino. I don't agree with everything Dan Bongino says, but he's a a conservative radio host and a Fox News host. And he was blocked from any search. So if you did a search for Dan Bongino's name, it would come up empty. So no one could find the guy. And then here's two Twitter staffers telling Barry Weiss, uh, formerly of the New York Times, who's now started this free press Uh, venture, which seems pretty impressive. Twitter staff are saying, we control the amplification of your content and quote, normal people don't know it. I think nobody knew it. And then Twitter executives just lied about all this. I mean, here's Jack Dorsey testifying before Congress. Is there any shadow banning? No. Is there any this? No. Now, maybe Jack Dorsey didn't know and he was uh, not lying in terms of his own knowledge. But Jack Dorsey... And others were part of this high level. There was one committee that did all of the, you know, we're suspending this person, we're uh, shadow banning this person, we're putting a warning on this tweet. And then there was this super secret committee at the top that no one even knew about. That that were the most sensitive cases. Um, So this is all very systematic and sweeping. These are not just a few one-offs, not by a long shot. So take this guy, Yoel Roth. He was the trust and safety director and recently quit. Now, um, he once said there were actual Nazis in the Trump White House. And he, he told his colleagues the news, again, this is from the documents, uh, that CEO Jack Dorsey had approved a five-strikes-and-you're-out plan to permanently ban someone. They didn't have a plan before. So people asked, well, can we ban Donald Trump after January 6th? Uh, And and Roth replied, no, you can't because he's only got one strike. He needs four more strikes before we can personally ban him. That was the policy on January 7th, I believe. The next day, boom, forget about that. Trump simply, simply abolished the rule and banned Trump for inciting violence. And drop the public interest exception for world leaders. You know, as Charlie Gasparino said on my show, there's, you know, various ayatollahs and despots who still have accounts on Twitter. But just the way in which they bent their own rules. Like, one day, it's you got to have five strikes. The next day, screw that. We're getting rid of Trump. And Roth, in in the back and forth in these messages, said, this is the thing everyone wants. There was just one junior official who said, well, this is a slippery slope because it's not rooted in any policy. Now, look, some of you may think, yeah, look what uh, Trump incited violence. On January 16th, he should have been banned. It's now two years later, and if not for Elon Musk, the permanent ban would have continued. Indefinitely, I guess, even though he is the only declared candidate for president. Now, here's more from these files. About a week before the 2020 election, Yoel Roth and Twitter started suppressing the reach of Donald Trump's tweets. This is before he even lost the election and well before January 6th. And as time went on, more and more aggressive action was taken. Remember, this guy was the president of the United States at the time. And Roth and his compatriots were using their tools to not make sure that nobody could see Trump's tweets, and certainly the media, you know, publicized a lot of them, but just to make sure they weren't shared or they were harder to find. They just suppressed it. And they had all of these Orwellian terms, uh deamplification and... Visibility, visibility filtering. Think about that. Visibility filtering means people don't get to see what you post on Twitter or at various levels. It's just it's you know it's censorship is what it was. Now another s and so on January sixth, when Trump tweeted to the protesters, "Go home. We love you. You're very special." One Twitter executive. Said in the back talk in the back and forth, it's gut wrenching. He's a horrible human being. That was their view of Trump. Um, at the same time, we learned that Joel Roth was meeting weekly with the FBI, with the Homeland Security people, with the Director of National Intelligence, and this, of course, raises questions about whether Twitter and I'm sure Facebook had somebody doing this too were being used as there was this business about, was it all Russian disinformation? Well, it turns out, Hunter Biden's laptop was not. It was real. Remember, that's what all this is about. It was all about the original decision to make sure, to actually freeze the accounts of people who tried to share the information from the New York Post story in late 2020 on the Hunter Biden laptop. And at one point, uh, it was reported in in the back and forth. It was actually Yoel Roth. Reporters think we're idiots for banning that story and then unbanning it. And that part I have to agree with. But anyway, there's this view that meeting with Trump's FBI and Trump's Director of National Intelligence and Trump's Homeland Security people um, was some kind of collusion with law enforcement. And I don't know if that's true or not, but the weekly meetings are noteworthy. And then you get to The way in which, beyond Donald Trump, beyond the way he was banned, beyond the way he was limited, I mean, how is that not huge news? Whether you test Donald Trump or whether you admire Donald Trump, given the prominence of Twitter, I I just don't get it. Beyond that, um, as I think I've said on the podcast, all this would have come out except, and this should just be a Netflix movie, uh, Jim Baker, former FBI general counsel, involved in the early days of the Russiagate probe, resigned after investigation, uh, was hired by Twitter, and Elon Musk didn't know about it. And he blocked the search, and when Musk found out, he fired the guy's ass. Okay. Musk says, There's no question Twitter operated as a Democratic Party activist machine. Now, Then, you know, I I agree with Elon Musk putting this stuff out. And then he does something dumb by posting, my pronouns are prosecute slash Fauci. The Atlantic has a whole piece about how he's a far-right activist. Remember, this guy voted for Biden. He voted for Obama. He considered himself, you know, a moderate, left-leaning centrist, I think. But now believes that the Democratic Party is too woke, has gone too far, and did suggest that people vote Republican in this past election as a check on the Democratic White House. It's not crazy stuff. But when he does something like that, I can't defend it. I mean, who cares what he thinks about Anthony Fauci? He went on to say, well, Fauci lied to Congress and he funded the gain of research business. He's not going to be prosecuted. And... I think when he spouts off with political opinions, whether I agree with him or not, that's not the point. Um, He does look like a right-wing troll, but I don't believe that that's what he is. But, you know, he keeps doing it, so I I can't defend it. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at BrianKilmeadeShow.com. Now, let's move on to number two. Washington Post piece says Republicans in Congress are splintering over how aggressively to run interference for Donald Trump as he faces potential criminal prosecution, with only his closest allies planning to attack DOJ and the investigations now being run by the special counsel Jack Smith. The chasm between lawmakers who have continued to vehemently defend the Republican presidential candidate and those who have started to quietly inch away from the former president widened last week as top GOP, GOP leaders, laid out the party's investigative priorities. And the reason for this is that um, a lot of these Republicans are looking at Trump for the last three weeks. The Kanye dinner, the we have to... There's so much fraud in 2020, we have to suspend rules and regulations, including those in the Constitution. All that stuff. Here's Lindsey Graham in the story, saying he's less interested in going after the Justice Department. I don't see an interruption of an ongoing investigation into Trump. That's going to play itself out one way or another. Graham told Washington Post, I think DOJ and FBI need to be asked questions about what they told Facebook, Twitter, and other media outlets about the Hunter Biden story. He's kind of distancing himself a little bit, and he's, you know, Donald's golfing pal. Chuck Grassley, by contrast, um, and Ron Johnson, who just got reelected, are taking on the Trump investigation more directly, raising questions about the appointment of a special counsel. Well, that came only after Donald Trump decided to be a declared candidate. Um, Lawmakers said they've been approached by whistleblowers objecting to political considerations inside the FBI, which obviously would reinforce Trump's claims of being unfairly targeted. Jim Jordan, he's the incoming House Judiciary Chairman. That in and of itself tells you how different life is going to be in just about three weeks, uh, beginning of January when the House Republicans take over. And it doesn't matter whether it's by four votes or 40 votes. They will have the the gavel, probably Kevin McCarthy, we'll see. Um, They will chair all the committees. But James Comer, the Republican incoming chairman, of an oversight committee uh, said on CNN that following up an investigation to classified documents at uh, Trump's Mar-a-Lago club will not be a priority. Uh, That doesn't shock me. He wants to look into the search warrant. This reminds me of Russia. Well, how did this get started? Why was there an FBI search warrant? Well, I mean, I can answer that because the Department of Justice went to a court and said, we believe there is probable cause uh, of a potential crime being committed of top-secret classified documents that belong to the government, not to any former president, are at Mar-a-Lago, and we haven't been able to get cooperation over the months. We don't think all the classified top-secret documents have been returned. And they were right. All right, we'll see how that plays out. Number three. Speaking of Hunter Biden, here's another Washington Post scoop on sort of the other side, looking at how Hunter Biden is going to deal. So the piece starts out by saying um, Hunter Biden's friend and lawyer, Kevin Morris, uh, was laying out his thoughts, this is back in September, about, you know, the onslaught of investigations by House Republicans and he says, Morris says, Hunter Biden's camp has got to be more aggressive. At one point, Hunter Biden himself called into the meeting. They feel, here's the quote, from David Brock, you know, one-time conservative who for a very long time now has uh, been involved on the liberal side, uh, media matters and other outfits trying to hold the press accountable, which hold the conservative press especially accountable. David Brock quoted here as saying, they, the Hunter Biden people, feel there is a whole counter-narrative missing because of the whole Hunter-Hater narrative out there. What we really got into was more the meat of it, the meat of what a response would look like. Brock was going to plan, was going to, Create a new group, Facts First USA, focusing on these House GOP investigations. Um, so there's a bunch of efforts, and neither Hunter Biden nor President Biden are fully in on this. But Hunter Biden has been working with the sky Morris, he's hired several lawyers. Uh, one guy is handling a federal criminal investigation into his business dealings. That's the thing that's in the hands of the U.S. attorney in Delaware. It's kind of dragged on forever. I mean, I think they even have to charge him or not charge him. Um, And then a separate attorney to deal with the House investigators, which makes sense. The White House and the DNC, this is separate now, Develop their own strategies for attacks on the president's son. Bob Bauer, Former White House counsel under Obama is going to represent President Biden in a personal capacity, should the need arise. Well, remember, a lot of this is about did uh, Hunter Biden's buck abroad involve, or in any way touch on, or in any way benefit from, or in any way share money with the man who's now the president of the United States? We shall see. So obviously, Biden potentially, theoretically, might need representation on his own. Um, This guy, Morris, is a Hollywood lawyer and novelist with a lot of celebrity clients, (laughs) including the creators of South Park. Um, And House Republicans actually sent him a letter in June asking about reports that he gave Hunter Biden $2 million to help pay off a tax bill that's the very subject of this federal investigation. He owed a lot of back taxes. Um, I don't know how that turned out. One Democrat who's involved quoted as saying, no one thinks the strategy of putting Hunter Biden front and center is smart. No one, including the White House, thinks this is a smart strategy. Remember they had him go to the uh, state dinner last week, and he went up to Kevin McCarthy and talked to McCarthy's mother. Anyway, let's move on to number four. Peace in the Atlantic by Kirsten Cinema. This has gotten so much coverage, and look... The fact that she's leaving the Democrats, at least on a symbolic level, is noteworthy. The fact that she's becoming an independent, in my humble opinion, is all about her trying to get reelected in 2024 because she would otherwise be facing a Democratic primary that she would have a very good chance of losing. On the other hand, if she runs as an independent in Arizona, There's a Democratic candidate trying to win the Senate seat and a Republican candidate. I mean, we have to see how this plays out, but isn't there a high likelihood that a Republican would take the seat because Kirsten Sinema and the Democratic candidate would sort of split the left-leaning vote? I don't know. The Atlantic says, look, she was never really a true Democrat anyway, and this simply ratifies what everyone already knew. In the second view, she's still a Democrat. This is nearly pure performance, and she'll continue to be a crucial and mostly reliable member of the Democratic's thin majority. So basically, Atlantic says Joe Manchin has gotten more of the attention, but Sinema has been perhaps the most maddening alleged member of the Democratic caucus. Manchin can be fickle and confusing, but he's always been a middle-of-the-road guy with good electoral instincts. Decent intentions and bad ideas, as The Atlantic puts it. He's happy to buck his party, but he seems anguished about it. Cinema is ideologically unpredictable and erratic. How else could someone go from being a radical anti-war activist to identifying John McCain as her political role model? Well, John McCain remains a popular figure among many in Arizona, so you could sort of get that. Except, Kirsten Cinema is a Democrat, or you know, not. There's no equivalent of Dino, like Rhino for Republicans. Republican in name only. No one seems to know what to expect from Cinema, and she often won't tell them. She's a bad bargaining partner. You can't negotiate with someone who won't say what she wants. She seldom intends caucus meetings. And then it goes into her ideas, like one of her ideas is uh, in favor of a loophole for carried interest. This is a thing that's very important to a relative handful of rich people and hedge fund managers, to shield themselves from taxes. It's not exactly a populist uh, issue in Arizona. So when she switches her party affiliation, of course she's not a Democrat. But listen to this, 538 calculates that she votes with Biden... 93% 93% of the time, more than Manchin, more than John Tester, more than Catherine Cortez Masto, more than Bernie Sanders, another independent who caucuses with the Democrats with very different, obviously, ideological leanings. So, I remember when Kirsten Sinema did this, she spoke to Politico and she spoke to CNN's Jake Tapper. And when Tapper asked her, Well, how is this switch going to affect Senate control? she says, That's a kind of D.C. thing to worry about, which, as the Atlantic says, is a funny thing to hear from a United States senator who works in Washington. By the way, Paul in September found she has a 37 percent favorability rating in Arizona, 54 percent unfavorable. So this is about not having to face a Democratic Party. And it's a long way to go until the fall of 2024. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Hey, number five, and then I'm going to get to the Royals. I should have teased that at the top. President Biden's uh, 10-month effort to free Brittany Griner faced stubborn resistance, not just from a Russian government, but from his own Justice Department. Washington Post saying the Justice Department viewed the uh, prisoner swap Greiner for notorious arms dealer Victor Boot, the merchant of death, was a mistake because of this discrepancy in the offenses. And, you know, Kevin McCarthy and others have just said that this was unconscionable and this will only encourage the taking uh, intentions of more Americans abroad, and I get that. On the other hand, as I've said, um, how do you leave Brittany Griner who whose sin was being a black lesbian basketball player, who went to Russia, was known in Russia because she wanted to make some money in the off-season and brought some cannabis oil, been prescribed. How do you leave her with a nine-year sentence um, to rot away in a Russian penal colony where she had just been transferred? Um, That was the only deal available. And President Biden took it. And then there's the whole business about state Department trying to uh, get Paul Whalen to be part of the package, and they couldn't. It was one or none, the Russians said. They couldn't because Moscow considers Whalen a spy, which he is not, and we don't have a Russian spy to trade. And, you know, a lot of conservatives said, oh, this is a terrible, what about Paul Whalen? Biden abandoned him. Well, the Whelan family, family has said that it's disappointed, but that it's happy that Brittany Griner gets to come home. And Paul Whalen's brother said President Trump was in office in 2018 when Paul Whalen was seized. And the number of times that in public President Trump talked about getting Whalen out in 2018, 2019, or 2020 was zero. And... Basically, feels like President Trump's criticism here is on Warner. Trump has said he was offered the deal of exchanging Paul Whelan for Victor Boot and wouldn't take the deal. So there you have it. Now, I watched So You Didn't Have To. I watched two episodes of the Harry and Meghan Netflix series you know, which has caused this just explosion in the British press. How dare Harry say that he married for love. He was followed what was in his heart, not getting somebody who would fit the mold of the British family, which his brother and others, I think, taken as a slap that, that they didn't marry for love and, you know, kind of things like that. Now, because I'm about to criticize them, I'm going to say two positive things first. One is, I, there were two areas, I, I thought I would never have any sympathy for these, this couple because, look, they get to have it both ways. They leave the royal family, but they're still world famous because of their titles. And then they get to come to the U.S., uh, made a huge lucrative deal for Spotify that didn't work out. Now there's a multi-million dollar deal with Netflix, and they get to vent and make these little videos, and isn't that great? and live in some palatial state in California. All right. First of all, I did feel sympathy for them about having to deal with a paparazzi. There's a lot of footage of, you know, the paparazzi constantly chasing them, especially Meghan Markle. And it's a lot to deal with in your life. And their conduct is often outrageous. And you can't help but think about, and Harry has talked about, you know, it was the paparazzi essentially who killed his mom, who killed Princess Diana. As they would, I mean, they would get in cars and chase a car that Diana was in, and they do the same thing now. And it's scary, given the way that Diana died in 1997. What an absolute tragedy. So, on that front, I feel sympathy for them. And the second was about. Meghan Markle's race, that there were, when you know, she's of mixed race. She has a a black mother and a white father from whom she's now estranged. And this footage of this is an interview with her mother, who seems very feisty. And once they're dating... And then certainly it was finally announced. And by the way, they let, they let the press break it. They should have broken it on their own terms instead, you know, as they were dating and Harry was sneaking her into Buckingham Palace, thinking, I mean, knowing it would leak eventually, but just so they could have some alone time. I mean, that wasn't a great strategy. But anyway, you see headlines from all these papers and you hear commentators and presenters in the UK talking about, you know, how she's a black woman, and how's this gonna play, and criticizing her. And and at behind a lot of that criticism, I think was certain racist vibe. So not two things I felt sorry for them. Beyond that, it was basically, woe is me, you know, um, we've had such a hard time, and we did, we did our best, and you know, nobody liked us there, and we had trouble with the family because they're so reserved. And the British press savaged us. And here's the thing. Here's the bottom line. And look, some of it was cute and interesting. There was also a lot of filler where they would just go back and show pictures from Megan's upbringing and how she went back to her old school in California. In any event, here's the bottom line. They portray themselves, both Prince Harry, who grew up in the family firm, and American actress Meghan Markle, who you can see is very smart. They both say, oh, we had no idea that we would have trouble once we were in the British family. And we had no idea all the demands that would be put on us and dealing with the British press. We had no idea. And it's BS, folks. Of course, Harry knew. And of course, Meghan Markle knew. They're just pretending to be naive about it so they can play the victim. What a shock to find out that there were royal duties that we had to constantly do and that we would be chased by the press and we had to deal with the uh, tabloids. And that uh, we would live in this sort of gilded cage? Ah, it was all a shock to us. Yeah, right. Come on. And that's why I think a lot of people, you know, ordinary people, not, you know, people who think they are ungrateful to the British royal family. That's why I think it went too far. Nobody can watch this and believe that, that they were that naive. So come on, give me a break, as we say in America. And as I will now say, thank you for listening. we got an extra story in there. I try to give a, you a know, bonus when I can. I appreciate the chance to talk to you in an extended way. You know, on, on yesterday on the show, I just kept having to hit commercial breaks. That's the nature of television, not complaining about it. But I would have liked another 10 minutes to talk about Twitter. And I would have liked more time to talk about Brittany Griner as I did... Uh, with Martha McCallum and everything else. So with that, I'd appreciate if you'd subscribe if you're not already getting this podcast. And we'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzFeeder. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music.